This episode contains disturbing content and explicit language. Please take care while listening. Cats. At the very bottom of the ocean, there are thousands of shipwrecks. And on some of those shipwrecks, there's treasure, gold and silver, just sitting there, waiting to be found. I didn't even want to say thousands of wrecks. It's probably hundreds of thousands of wrecks all over the bottom of the ocean. I have been told there's more gold on the bottom of the ocean in shipwrecks than there are on the surface. You know, if you compute it throughout time, going back to 4000 BC when they started sailing around, stuff sinks. Treasure hunting requires a certain level of imagination. And navigating deep ocean waters requires a tremendous level of skill. In 2009, Kevin Lachance was part of a crew with the mission to salvage one of those shipwrecks, the SS Port Nicholson. The wreck lies just off the coast of Cape Cod, about 700 feet below the ocean surface. And it was said to be filled with platinum and gold. I knew they were looking for guys. So I was either going to go back to New York or I was going to go jump on a boat that's going to go on a treasure hunt. The person behind this salvaging mission is a man named Greg Brooks. He's a veteran deep-sea salvager. And he insisted that on the Port Nicholson shipwreck was enough platinum and gold to change the lives of an entire town. We're talking billions of dollars worth of precious metals. And all he had to do was go get it. Four billion is a lot of money when you're thrown in your face and it was a big carrot. That carrot was thrown around quite a bit, and you can get gold fever from it, and a lot of people did. For Greg Brooks, his relentless pursuit of the Port Nicholson treasure landed him and the entire mission at the center of an FBI investigation. Kevin remembers being questioned by authorities. They wanted my ROV logbook. They wanted that for evidence. I gave it to them. And it turned a little white when I gave that over because that, was, that had a lot of heart in my soul in there in those words of every detail of what we did. And I said, I've seen the Indiana Jones movies. Artifacts like this disappear in a huge warehouse and they're never seen again. Everyone in this story is looking for treasure, but not all the treasure lies at the bottom of the ocean. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist. This is Greg Brooks, Gold Fever, a story told in one episode. I'm Hannah Smith. If you are enjoying the show, would you take a moment to rate, review, and follow The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen? Thank you. Greg Brooks has lived in Gorham, Maine for over 20 years. It's a small suburb just outside of Portland, the kind of place where everyone knows everyone. I grew up here in Maine. I was born in Maine. My dad was doing the treasure hunting thing from pretty much from the time I was born. This is Ashley Brooks, Greg's daughter. I reached out to Greg, but he didn't want to talk to me. Ashley told me he doesn't trust the media. But she agreed to do an interview. Greg has lived his whole adult life on or near the coast of Maine. He served in the military and then became an entrepreneur, running his own swimming pool business. But the trajectory of his career changed forever while he was on vacation in 1984. When 
my parents went on a Caribbean trip with a couple of their friends. My dad was snorkeling and he found a silver bar in the sand. And that is kind of what set him off on this journey of being really curious about treasure, about shipwrecks. Ashley said that Greg was never able to retrieve that silver bar. But just knowing it was there sparked something in his mind. He decided to become an actual treasure hunter. So I remember there were periods when I was growing up where my dad would be, you know, gone for a few weeks at a time out to sea. And it wasn't until I was probably a teenager that he was doing the shipwreck business full time. The shipwreck business sounds exciting, but in reality, it's a lot of paperwork. Finding the perfect shipwreck can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. You have to determine exactly where a shipwreck is on the ocean floor. And then you need to confirm that the ship was actually carrying treasure when it sank. Most ships have cargo manifests. Then you've got to make sure no one else, no person or country, has a legal claim to that shipwreck. Greg hired researchers to comb through historical documents for him, looking for just the right shipwreck. And then he found the SS Port Nicholson. I think that would have been back in 2008 was when I first heard him talk about the Port Nicholson. He was really excited about this particular shipwreck. I mean, he'd always get pretty excited when he'd find any new wreck. Like, he just loves this stuff. So he was always just really enthusiastic about it. And But this one, I remember him being like, this could be like the big one. <laughs> I think he, he might have used that phrase, you know. That's pretty classic <laughs> treasure hunter lingo, though. The Port Nicholson was a British cargo ship that was torpedoed by a German submarine and sank at the height of World War II. Based on historical context and documentation, Greg estimated that this ship was carrying 70 tons of platinum and around 10 tons of gold bullion in the form of ingots, or gold bars, basically. The total would be worth approximately 4 billion U.S. dollars, not million, billion This certainly seemed like the big one. Greg filed the paperwork to secure the rights for the shipwreck. And then he put out a press release. This was to drum up interest in the project, mainly for the purpose of securing investors. My brother called me and told me about this investment opportunity with Sea Hunters and the Port Nicholson and the treasure. Greg needed to raise money for the treasure hunt. He would need a ship, highly technical equipment, and he'd have to hire a crew. So he turned to the people of his town, the people of Gorham, including Susan Gallagher, who grew up in Gorham. The documentation I have has everything listed out as far as silver and bullions and ignots, or whatever they're called, um, literally listed out in the billions of dollars, saying this is what's on the ship. So it was presented as billions and billions of dollars just sitting there waiting for him to bring it up, and we'd all share in it. To Susan, treasure hunting didn't seem all that far-fetched. She'd actually sat next to a man on a plane once who got rich by salvaging a Spanish shipwreck. But what really helped Greg Brooks get the people of Gorham on board to invest was the family that he partnered up with. They were trusted Gorham locals. 100% trustworthy. And that's why I took a drive up and brought my checkbook. In 2008, there was an investor meeting at a Lazy Boy store in nearby Scarborough, Maine. The pitch was relatively simple. Greg Brooks was selling shares in his company, 
Once the treasure was recovered, the investors would get a portion of the spoils. The potential return on investment was huge. A $10,000 buy-in could easily turn into hundreds of thousands of dollars, or even a million. Susan said the whole thing felt like an exclusive insider tip that was being shared with Gorham locals. Investors would even have to sign non-disclosure agreements. They presented a booklet that was to be looked at only there and not to be taken out of the building. Every page says, do not copy. It felt like it was the Gorm friends and family. So it did feel exclusive. And it felt like, oh, we're special because we've been invited to this meeting. Or we've, we're special because they're letting, letting us invest in this sure thing. The booklet Susan is referring to is the investor packet. And the investor packet claimed that the reason Greg Brooks believed that there was treasure on the Port Nicholson was simply a matter of history. During World War II, England started shipping valuables to Canada and the U.S. for safekeeping. This is Kevin Lachance again. It's a very plausible story. It's not even plausible. They were doing it. In 1940 especially, England was very afraid that Germany was going to invade them and started shipping stuff to Canada. All of the valuable stuff so they wouldn't lose their famous historical relics, and they were shipping gold. A boat called the uh, Edinburgh got sunk in a convoy, and she went down with five tons of gold. Right around the time that the Port Nicholson sank, the Edinburgh, a very similar ship, sank as well. And when that ship was salvaged, they found around 465 gold bars on board. So many people, you know, went in for 5,000, some 10,000, some 40, some 500,000. So it's all across the board for the amount of money. I mean, there's a guy up the street 20 minutes who put in $500,000. And it wasn't presented as a, if we find it, it was presented as, we know where it is, we're going to find it. So it was presented as very low failure rate, if any. Other investors were barely able to scrape the money together. These were not business executives. These were just regular citizens of Gorham. Another investor, Gary Osier, put in $42,000. I actually went in with um, two very good friends of mine, and others' groups were made up of 10, 12, 15 people. There was a couple lunch ladies at Gorham High School who had basically, you know, no money to speak of. How much money did you invest? I invested $10,000. And what was the amount that you were expecting as a return on that investment? I think it was like, I want to say half a million dollars. The rate of return was huge. And I, I don't think half a million is that far off. Greg said he knew exactly where the treasure was located and that all he needed was enough money to put together a salvaging mission to go retrieve it. The investor packet estimated that once they had all the equipment for the mission, the project would be completed within 30 days. By 2009, Greg had raised $5 million for the project. He found a ship that needed some repairs and named it the Sea Hunter. In the summer of 2009, the Sea Hunter took its first trip out to the Port Nicholson wreck site. Greg Brooks successfully raised $5 million by 2009. He purchased an old ship down in Louisiana, fixed it up, brought it back to Boston Harbor, and hired a crew. 
the crew as a whole would gain 7% of it. And then we would divide that up. That 7% would be divided amongst the crew. Kevin was hired on as deck boss. He said the pay was low, but it was worth it. 7% of $4 billion? It was going to be life-changing for him, even when split with the entire crew. Although Kevin was a little worried about the crew when he realized that he was by far the most experienced person on board. When I was 25, I got my captain's license. Been working on the water ever since, which what kind of brought me to uh, you know, a grand adventure on a treasure hunt in my early 40s. The Port Nicholson wreck site is about 100 miles out from Boston Harbor. It took about a day just to get to the site. Out there in the middle of the ocean, it's very remote. We would lose any ability to make a cell phone call at Boston Headlight. About two miles after that, you would lose all ability to text anyone. You're just alone. You're on a different planet. You do not have access to the civilized world. You're, you're it. That's it. There's nobody else. There's no one coming to help. There's no fire department out there. There's no police department. You're your own government, so to speak. Almost immediately, the sea hunter encountered problems. Problems as basic as anchoring the ship, a.k.a. stabilizing it above the shipwreck so that they could begin the process of salvaging. Kevin knew that this job was going to come with challenges. But the challenges started to stack up surprisingly quickly. Like, right off the bat, they had equipment failures. Their remote-operated vehicle, or ROV, just couldn't withstand the deep-sea elements. And then when we finally got to the point where we could do the ROV stuff, we made a flight, and the thing broke on the second trip. But even more concerning to Kevin was that Greg seemed to have no idea where the treasure was located on the ship. We were pretty much told at the beginning as a crew that we we're just going out there to pick this stuff up. We weren't looking for nothing. We already knew it was there. And of course, that wasn't the case from day one. Uh, when we get out there, it's like, no, we're, we're looking for stuff. We don't know where it is. The summer of 2009 was a failure. The Sea Hunter found nothing. They went back in the summer of 2010, but again, they found nothing. The mission that was supposed to take 30 days quickly turned into years. Greg blamed the bad weather conditions out at sea. Here's Ashley. The window for salvage was very small, if I remember right. They would usually be gone for three or four days because it took like a day of travel to get there and then a day of travel to get back. So you would need a weather window of like three or four days of ideal weather to actually do the salvage. It's not like you can salvage every single day of the year, or even most days, like, say, the Caribbean. This is the northern Atlantic Ocean, where the water is bitter cold and the currents are strong. They could only salvage in the spring and summer months. But as the mission lagged on, Greg was burning through investor money. There was ship maintenance, fuel costs, and crew salaries. In fact, both Greg's wife and daughter Ashley were on the payroll. And all of this was paid for using that $5 million from investors. Investors who were not happy that the mission was taking this long. The excuse initially was, oh, the seas are rough, we can't go out. The seas are rough, we can't go out. That happened for months. I mean, how do you counter that, like if they're rough? But you had this big ship. It was meant to be in rough seas. The Sea Hunter's problems only intensified. At one point, Greg let the entire crew go but then later rehired them. There was a stack fire on the ship, close to the fuel tanks. They were able to put it out before the ship was destroyed. 
Kevin actually quit at one point because he was so fed up with the inexperienced crew that Greg had hired. He later rejoined the mission. But the real holdup seemed to be the equipment. It was constantly breaking down. Kevin said that the recovery equipment Greg purchased was just not made for the harsh, deep-sea environment. The years dragged on. In 2011, the Sea Hunter finally recovered something from the Port Nicholson. They found a compass, a brick, and a fire extinguisher. No platinum, no gold. Greg's response was always that they just needed to raise more investor money. Every time he came back to Portland, it, that's, that was the same old story. We need more investors, we need more investors. They just didn't have enough money. Like, all the equipment that they had was not the state-of-the-art stuff that they would need for a wreck like that. And my dad was, like, always trying to, like, raise more money to get the equipment, but it was hard because nothing was happening. More time was going on. He was very frustrated. At one point, Greg raised additional funding to purchase a submarine. But the submarine was old and leaky, and they were never actually able to use it. By 2012, three years after that original investment meeting at the Lazy Boy store, no treasure had been found. Gary Osier, who had invested $42,000 into the project, started to think that Greg wasn't telling the truth. He says, uh, oh yeah, we were out there and we tried dropping anchor and we still were being thrown around. And I, you know, I'd log on and look at the conditions of the water in Cape Cod at that time and they weren't bad at all. And then in 2012, despite the fact that the sea hunter had not found or even seen any treasure at all on the Port Nicholson wreck site, Greg put out a press release. The headline read, $3 billion World War II shipwreck located in Boston Harbor's backyard. Shortly after, CBS ran the story. It was also picked up by BBC, Reuters, Daily Mail, and New York Post. Aboard his 200-foot salvage ship, Sea Hunter, Greg Brooks calls himself a treasure hunter extraordinaire. What are you searching for? We're not searching for anything. We found $3 billion worth of platinum. In another interview, Greg said he had all but seen the treasure at the wreck site. So how have you been able to go down and check out what's, what's on this sunken ship? Well, we, we've sent down a remote-operated vehicle, and we have seen trapezoidal-shaped ingots. And back in 1942, anything that was trapezoidal-shaped was precious metals. Nowadays, they, they do put other metals like that, but back in 1942, they didn't. So you think that's platinum? It sure looks like it. From the press, Greg was able to secure more investors, bringing the total amount of investor money to $10 million. The Sea Hunter returned to the wreck site six more times during the summer of 2012. Still, they weren't able to bring anything up except a box of rusty hatchets. Was Greg actually looking for treasure? Or was he just enjoying the hunt? If Greg really believed that there was billions of dollars of treasure on that ship, why wouldn't he have gotten the right equipment from the beginning? It's almost as if he didn't want to get down into that ship to see what was in it. In 2013, a wealthy investor who had sunk $200,000 into the project offered to buy Greg out of the salvaging mission. This enraged Greg. There was no way he was letting the Port Nicholson project out of his grasp. The way that Gary Osier describes Greg during this time makes it sound like he was coming unhinged, 
desperately trying to keep his crew and investors from abandoning the mission and turning on him. Gary remembers a particularly disturbing lunch with Greg around this time. Craig told the story that they had an ingot right to the surface, a gold ingot, which is worth about, I think, $850,000, something like that. And he says, and we had it right there, and we dropped it. And I said, you know what, Greg? You shouldn't ever tell that story again. Because first of all, guys who go out fishing for like prize fish, when they get a fish online, they get the nets ready. And that's for a fish. You're telling me you're bringing an $850,000 ingot up and you don't have nets available? You don't have something to catch it in case it falls? I go, bad story, Greg. Greg told Gary Osier that he had found a gold ingot on the Port Nicholson and then dropped it accidentally back into the ocean when he was trying to pull it to the surface. Gary knew this story was totally made up. And later, Greg even admitted it. He had not found a gold bar in the ocean. When I asked Kevin about this, he told me that Greg had purchased a fake gold bar with the plan to film a crew member pulling it up out of the water, making it seem as if it had come from the Port Nicholson wreck. Was there any part of the gold bar story that you heard from Greg and from Gary that was like, we know the gold is down there, we just need people to have a little more faith, so that's why we're planting it? Or why, why did he say that he did that? He proposed to film that fake gold bar to get investor money, period. So it was additional money. They were always trying to get more money. From what I can tell, Greg never actually made a film of the fake gold bar. Or if he did, he never showed it to investors. But somehow, words still got around. For a fleeting moment, Susan was hopeful that the treasure was in sight. Well, I do know there was a gold bar brought up. So everyone's like, oh, a gold bar. Good, maybe they're getting close. Come to find out down the road, someone fessed up and said, oh, that was a hoax. They basically used a gold bar as a prop for people. I mean, that's bad. The clock was ticking for Greg Brooks. He had convinced his neighbors to hand over their savings to him, telling them that this treasure was a sure thing and that he could recover it in a matter of months. But it seemed like Greg would be satisfied to just keep going on fruitless missions forever, raising more and more investor capital. So what's the first moment where you're like, something is not right here? I believe it's when I got a phone call from Paul Lawton, who's an historian from Plymouth, Massachusetts, and also an attorney. And so we spoke, and he started telling me about Greg's past supposed treasure hunts, where they were not true, nothing came about, they were lies. How did it make you feel to hear that? It agitated me to the point that I was going to push this as far as I could and get his name out there as a crook. Susan filed a complaint with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they opened an investigation into Greg Brooks. Susan told me, talk to Paul Lawton. Paul has the real story on the Port Nicholson. The treasure that he is seeking is not underwater. The treasure that they were seeking was from idiot investors. I hate to say that because some of these people I met were actually very nice, but I wish they had done their due diligence. Paul is an attorney who lives on Cape Cod. 
He's also a naval historian and an expert on shipwrecks in the Atlantic Ocean. And basically, Paul told me he thinks there's no way that the Port Nicholson has any treasure on board. Number one, any ship that carried a treasure like that would have been well known. You know, any nation that transported something like that, there were insurance companies that insure them. They would have gone out immediately to recoup their losses and had international salvage firms searching for the wreck, as every other wreck had, like the HMS Edinburgh, which was sunk in World War II. It was carrying treasure. It was carrying a mere five tons of gold. It's a good point. If a country lost billions of dollars of precious metals at sea, there likely would have been attempts to recover it over the years. Secondly, Paul said, from a historical perspective, the amount of platinum that Greg Brooks claimed was on the ship is preposterous. There has never, to my knowledge, been 72 tons of platinum anywhere on the surface of the earth at any one location at any given time. Unlike Fort Knox, platinum is not a commodity that you put in a bank. Platinum, I think at the time in World War II, the largest producer of platinum was Russia. I believe they produced about 13 to 15 tons a year. And as soon as it came out of the ground, it went into industrial production. So it wasn't stockpiled anywhere. So the idea that there would have been 72 tons of platinum, number one, would have been the greatest treasure, the most valuable thing on the face of the earth at the time. So why would anyone ship it somewhere? And why would they put it on a tramp steamer? Paul's expert knowledge led him to deduce pretty quickly that the idea that there was treasure aboard the Port Nicholson was very unlikely. Plus, he had actually seen the Sea Hunter, the ship that Greg used for the salvaging mission back when it was docked at Boston Harbor in 2009. And Paul said he took one look at the recovery equipment that Greg purchased and knew it was never going to work. It was comical because I was on the ship when it was in East Boston. They actually invited the public to come out. And I went on board the ship and I laughed right in his face. I said, this is the stupidest thing in the world. What he did is he bought all this stuff to make somebody that didn't know, they'd go there, ooh, ah, a ship with a crane, an ROV that was completely useless. Paul told me that Greg has a storied past when it comes to shipwrecks, that On multiple occasions, Greg claimed he'd found treasure that later turned out didn't exist, and even shipwrecks that didn't exist. Paul believes that Greg Brooks is a con artist, that Greg found a shipwreck that was close to Boston Harbor and then convinced everyone that there was treasure on it. Then he drummed up a lot of excitement and press for it, charmed investors, raised millions of dollars, and then purchased ramshackle equipment, hired an untrained crew, and then used their failure as an excuse to continue raising more investor money. Oh, and Greg also partnered with a very trustworthy family in order to make the whole thing seem legitimate. He was able to form this core organization that looked to have all the legitimacy of something that you would feel comfortable writing a check. I'm going to write him a check for 25000 today, but this is worth, you know, a quarter of a million in a couple of years. This is a great investment. It's like Bitcoin. It's like investing in unicorn farts, to be perfectly honest with you. Listening to Paul, it'd be easy to write this whole thing off. It seems pretty clear that there is no treasure on that ship. But here's the thing. 
Greg had a cargo manifest from 1942 that listed platinum and gold on board the SS Port Nicholson. It was right there in the paperwork. And Greg was about to present that document in court. In 2014, Greg Brooks was legally required to provide paperwork showing that there was substantial evidence of treasure on the Port Nicholson. It turns out, unbeknownst to investors, Greg was in a legal battle with England over the shipwreck. The British government came in and claimed that they owned the wreck, and so the fight started in the federal court. This is a recording of a phone call I had with David Horan. David is the go-to attorney for treasure hunters. He's an expert in admiralty law, or basically the laws around shipwreck ownership. It's not uncommon for a shipwreck to get mired in litigation. Think about it. The treasure is often recovered in international waters, but the ship itself has a country of origin, and that country often tries to claim the treasure. In 2008, Greg Brooks hired David Horan. And... He came up with a document that had all kinds of stamps on it, top secret, all this, and had references to platinum, gold, and industrial diamonds. I looked at that and realized that if the Port Nicholson had all that on it, that was going to be an incredibly, incredibly valuable wreck, probably more valuable than any other wrecks that I had represented. But then the British government got involved, claiming that they had the right to any treasure that was found since the Port Nicholson was a British ship. The British said they had never salvaged the shipwreck before because their records showed that there was no treasure on board, that the ship had been carrying automobile parts, not platinum or gold. They were saying in our research, we don't show that all this stuff was on board. As we got into it, They actually questioned whether the document that we were using from the National Archives, they said that they had not been able to find that document. Litigation stalled because Greg didn't recover any treasure. So in 2014, the Admiralty Court demanded proof from Greg Brooks that the treasure existed at all. Greg's researcher, a man named Ed Mishu, was the one who found the Port Nicholson cargo manifest, the manifest that lists platinum and gold. He was a seasoned naval researcher, and he said he found the document at the National Archives. Well, David's team called the National Archives to verify the document. Strangely, the National Archives were unable to locate it. Then Ed Mishu provided additional documents to legitimize the cargo manifest. And this whole story could have turned out differently except for the fact that those documents found their way to the desk of David Horan's son, Darren. My son, Darren, who is my law partner now, but then he was an associate in the firm. Darren came into the office and said, Dad, uh, we're not going to be rich. And I said, uh, what, what do you mean? And he said, it's a fake. And I said, what's a fake? And he said, the form that has all the gold and platinum and the industrial diamonds, all that is a fake. 
The documents were expertly forged, clearly the work of someone with extensive naval and historical knowledge. But Darren also had expertise in historical documents, and he was able to tell that the document itself was real, but the cargo list typed on it, the one that listed billions of dollars of precious metals, that had been added later, not in 1942. The document was doctored. There was no original documentation listing precious metals on the Port Nicholson. It was all made up. When David Haran realized the document was fake, he told Greg Brooks he quit. David would not give me a clear answer on if he believes that Greg always knew that the documents were being forged. He said, Greg is a nice man, and his reputation has been ruined over this whole thing. But he also said that you have to be very careful when you are in the treasure hunting business. Even just the glimmer of an idea of treasure can captivate someone beyond reason. You know, once you start looking at something that says that you're looking at a fabulous, fabulous treasure, common sense tends to go away. Yeah, someone referred to it as gold fever. Is that what you would call it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, people can talk themselves into believing just nearly anything. David Haran stepped away, but he did inform the court of the falsified documents. An investigation was opened. It would eventually find its way to the FBI. I desperately wanted to speak with Greg Brooks about this whole thing. We reached out multiple times, but all we got back was this voice message. You're just looking for a story uh, to say that I'm a scammer, but I don't want to play that game. So thank you. Have a good life. Goodbye. I felt like I was hitting a wall, but Greg's daughter Ashley told me she would talk to him, try to convince him to speak with me. And then suddenly, I got the call I was waiting for. Well, hi, Greg. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for talking with us for the podcast. That, that's debatable, but we'll see. Okay, great. Fair. When I talked with Greg, it was a remote interview. We only saw each other over video. Ashley, his daughter, was also there, just off screen, helping him with the recording equipment. Greg has white hair and a mustache. He looks rugged how you'd expect a man to look if he'd spent most of his working years out at sea. Our conversation was innately uncomfortable. I'm doing a story about Greg, and I'm trying to sort out if he is a con man, if he knew about the faked documents, if there is any treasure on that ship. And he claims that he has been perpetually misunderstood and kind of crucified by the media and also by his neighbors. What were the biggest hurdles from your perspective of actually being able to get down there and see what was on the ship? The ROV, remote operated vehicle, wasn't strong enough for that current. That current was a four or five knot current. It didn't have enough power. It was too much current. The weather was bad. All kinds of things happened. And there's nothing we can do to control that. So we needed a work class ROV. And the work-class ROVs anywhere between 2 and $4 million. Why didn't you know that you needed the other ROV going into this from the beginning? I did. I, I did. I, I stated that many times. But you're only allowed to raise $5 million by law. 
It's true that you're only allowed to raise $5 million for a salvaging mission per calendar year. All in all, he raised $10 million. But the argument that you don't have enough money to buy the equipment that will actually work for the mission, so you buy subpar equipment instead, which is just never going to work, that argument doesn't make any sense to me. I've heard a similar complaint. Multiple people have told me that it was presented to them and they said the words sure deal or sure thing were used. And I think that is where people felt duped. A lot of people invested money thinking that there was no question that they would have a return on their investment. And so Did you ever pitch this to investors as a sure deal or a sure thing? No, that's something I don't do. I will say that I believe in it 99%. There's a 1% chance that it's not there, that the government will take it away from us, or these types of things. But 99%, I believe that it's on there, and I still believe it's on there. I asked Greg about the falsified documents. He claims that he was tricked along with everyone else. He said it was his researcher, Ed Mishu. He's the one to blame. Ed, he lied to us. He, he duped us. He went out to try to sell part of his share so he could have some money. Well, he didn't tell us that. But I know the guy that he tried to sell it to. And the guy told me since then that, you know, that's what he did. So the guy that was going to buy it wanted more information, more positive information. So Ed supplied it to him and told everybody that I told him to do it. Greg told me that Ed Mishu was hard up for cash and he wanted to sell his share in the Port Nicholson project to quickly recoup his money. So he faked the documents to try to entice the buyer. We reached out to Ed Mishu and he declined to do an interview. But he sent an email and this is what he said. Quote, Greg is and always has been a complete con. I know that now more than ever. From his early days in Haiti, supposedly looking for his silver bars, to Florida, to Massachusetts, to Maine, each of the projects was geared to provide finances so that he could live off the investor dollars. He added at the end, quote, Greg said to me and Captain Gary Esper, and I quote, You know, Ed, you don't have to actually recover treasure to make a living at this business. When, in your mind, did it really start to sort of take a turn for the worse? When Ed Michio came up and was wearing a wire, because I knew what it was going to cause. I mean, you'd have to be an idiot not to. In 2014, Ed Michio started working with the FBI. He admitted that he had falsified the documents and said that Greg was the one who told him to do it. In November of 2014, he met Greg at a Home Depot parking lot. Ed was wearing a wire. He tried to get Greg to admit that he knew about the documents, but Greg maintained that he did not know. The FBI obtained a search warrant for Greg's house in Gorham. On December 3rd, 2014, they raided his home. They showed up at my door. They had automatic weapons aimed at my head, pistols aimed at at my head, all kinds of stuff. You know, I used to say, all you had to do was ask me, I would have gave you what you wanted. But no, you come in here like big, you know, Gestapo. In the end, the judge who signed the search warrant ordered that the Sea Hunters stop salvaging the wreck. Sea Hunters was banned from ever trying to salvage the Port Nicholson again. Greg also lost his ship, the Sea Hunter, 
at auction because he failed to pay Boston Harbor for storage of the ship. It was decided that there wasn't enough evidence to support the claim of treasure on the SS Port Nicholson, and so the British government dropped their claim to the wreck. All the investigations fizzled out as well. Technically, Greg hadn't broken any laws. There was a disclaimer on page 106 of the investor packet that specifically stated all the risks involved with shipwreck salvaging, including the chance that they would never recover any treasure at all, and an acknowledgement that historical documents can be inaccurate. The FBI walked away. You know, uh, so I have nothing to worry about on any of that stuff. I mean, of course, you know, it went to the grand jury three times, and the grand jury threw it out. Now, the grand jury can indict a ham sandwich, but they didn't, they didn't indict me because there was nothing to indict me on. We attempted to speak with the FBI, the SEC, and the inspector general's office. They all declined to comment. None of Greg's investors ever got their money back. To this day, Greg refutes the claim that he was in it for the money, And it is true that he does not live a lavish lifestyle. Like a lot of people in Gorham, he lives pretty modestly. If I was a crook, why didn't I take some of that investment money and put it away and live off of that? I didn't. When we ran out of money, we ran out of money. I mean, right? Nothing. And I didn't take a dollar that wasn't mine from this. Greg is retired from salvaging and keeps more to himself these days but he still thinks there is treasure on the Port Nicholson. If I live long enough, I'm going to go back out there and recover it. And then everybody that sat here and said that, then they can all, you know, say, oh, I am sorry. Because if you give somebody, you know, $50 million, they're going to be a little bit nicer to you. After everything, Greg still holds on to the claim that 700 feet below the ocean surface, there is a ship with about $4 billion worth of precious metals. I honestly could not tell if he really believes this or if he is just so committed to the con. I asked Kevin about it. I don't know if you have an opinion on this or if you even want to speculate, but I am so curious, you know, if Greg Brooks himself believes or believed at one time or came to believe at some point that there is treasure down there. Well, here's the thing on that. Nobody knows if there's treasure on that until you go in and look. Does Greg Brooks believe it? I I think he does. Do I believe it? It was a scam? Yep. Do I believe there's treasure on the boat? Possible. But no one's ever going to know until you look in there. And I think that's why some people go back, is they want to know once and for all, is there something in it? Even though Kevin knows that the cargo manifest was faked, And even though he believes that the whole Port Nicholson project was a con, he still thinks it's possible that there is treasure on the Port Nicholson. Greg Brooks created an entire career for himself out of looking for treasure. The fact that he never found any didn't really seem to matter. As long as he could convince people that there might be treasure, he could live out his dream of being a treasure hunter, at least for a while. This is David Haran again. I think that everybody has to have a dream. If you saw the movie Goonies, that's the dream. That's the dream. 
and National Treasure and all these movies, there's that dream. It's all dreams of buried treasure and and all this. And I think everybody, every kid growing up, at least the ones that I grew up with, and certainly talking about me, uh, you have those kind of, of dreams. But yet, a majority of the big treasures still have not been found. Here's the thing. We still don't know for sure if there is treasure on the Port Nicholson. And unless someone makes their way down to the wreck and salvages it, we might never know. And in that unknowing lies an opportunity. An opportunity to imagine and hope and dream until you are consumed by gold fever. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It is produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with Pesha Eaton, Natalie Gregory, Kate Mays, and Sarah Dalgleish. Colin Thompson is our executive producer. Anton Doty is our editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Our cover art is by Arvin Lee. The ending credits song is Waltz for Zechariah from the album Cholet. Do you have any suggestions for the show and opportunists that you want us to cover? You can email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. Cast with a K. If you're enjoying The Opportunist, I would love it so much if you would take a moment, go to wherever you listen and subscribe to the show. Um, It also helps us a lot if you can rate and review the show, specifically on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show. So thank you so, so much.